Blog Talk Radio. We've gotta be the body to rock it like we're never gonna see it again We are exploding, the world is gonna know it We'll rock it like you're never gonna see us again Come on over Everything and anything that tells it like it is. My name is Joe Buccino, and my co-host and tag team partner is David Gomez. Sir, how are you? I'm doing fabulous, sir. As always, ready to get another exciting episode of Pure Gold underway. Now, of course, we apologize for last week. Joe decided to take a nap, and I had to carry the show for about 20 minutes. So it was pretty much a snore fest, but hopefully if any of you checked it out, it's not the worst thing you've ever heard in your lives. But anyway, this week we have a lot of exciting things on tap, which Joe will get to in a minute. Make sure to check us out, as always, puregoldpg.com, our amazing website. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, etc., etc., etc. And as always, if you'd like to be a part of the show, give us a call, 714-364-4721. JB? All right, Dave, and I think you forgot one etc., so and etc. So tonight on the show, we will be talking about the pay-per-view that's coming up. WWE Extreme Rules, which is going to be in our backyard once again um, in New Jersey. Do we consider it a pay-per-view, yeah. considering that we have a WWE Network? Yeah, I still consider it a pay-per-view for those people that decide not to get the network, so why not? Okay, just wondering. <laughs> so we have our, the, we're going to break down the pay-per-view tonight, This uh, right after the rundown. We'll also talk to... Former Met Glendon Rush, and let me tell you, sir, I know that he wasn't on the team for long, but Glendon Rush was one of my favorite Mets that I wanted to hold on to because, you know, a left-handed starting pitcher, um, and he had the potential to be really, really, really good, um, somebody that I really liked for the two years that he was on the team, uh, which is, well, not the two years, but he was on the team for about four years, but uh, he really had um, the potential, I thought, to be a great pitcher. Unfortunately, uh, whatever, whatever happened, it you know, didn't work out, and he, he ended his career with the um, the he was with everyone actually, with the Colorado Rockies. But Glendon Rush, sir, and uh, why don't you just tell us before we even start the show, how you even got in touch with Glendon Rush to be on our show tonight? Well, folks, as you know, if you've heard any of our past episodes, I mean, you know, this show we've always been about getting a great guest, and usually you have to seek people out, pay them large sums of money, all kinds of ridiculous things. But in Glendon's case, he actually found me on Twitter. I was in a mess wow. conversation uh, on the Twitter as I like to call it, um, ripping someone. I forget who it was. Probably Matt Harvey, because it was that last week, which is why I wanted to do that Tuesday show in the first place. I wanted to talk about Matt Harvey and what a tool bag he was for uh, you know, posting that middle finger picture. So it was a whole big controversy. A lot of Mets talked that day, and Glendon found me. You know, I said, hey, man, so it was nice to find you know, good fans of teams that you know I used to play on, the Mets being one of them, obviously. And, uh, you know, I, was, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I asked him privately. I said, hey, is this the Glendon Rush? And he said, yes. And, you know, it was pretty cool. And, I mean, you know, again, he, he spent his career with everyone from the Kansas City Royals to the Colorado Rockies. I mean, you know, seven different ball clubs, if I'm not mistaken here. One, two, three, four, five, six, six, excuse me, which is a lot. But, um, you know, he was a good he was a good guy, a good pitcher. He was popular here with the Mets, I remember. They, they, you know, fans liked him a lot. 
And when he followed me on Twitter, I said, oh, what the hell? I mean, this is going to be on my show. And, you know, sure enough, he said, absolutely. He said, uh, you know, this is his favorite show on the radio, and he came on. So, you know, I'm excited about that, sir. That's great. So he will be joining us on the program probably at the bottom of the hour, around 1130. Um, yeah, and then finally, yeah, and then finally, sir, um, you mentioned Matt Harvey. It, uh, it must be like people are taking their stupid pills today because, uh, or this this past couple of weeks because probably the biggest story in uh, in not only the basketball playoffs but just in all of sports that has made news uh, in and out of the sports world is the fact that uh, Donald Sterling, the owner of the Clippers, is no more been banished, and we'll get uh, we'll break that down too because I think everyone's gotten their two cents in, so PG's got to put their two cents in before we close out the show tonight. But sir. Let's start off with the, the entertainment portion. Let's talk talk about WWE Extreme Rules. Last night was Monday Night Raw. Um, I didn't really catch. I mean, I didn't catch it live. I, I saw some of it this afternoon uh, when I got home. Nothing really um, important except, I guess, the the main thing that we have here is like two big matches. We have Daniel Bryan fighting in an Extreme Rules match against Kane. Um, that's you know neither here nor there for me, and then you have the uh, evolution reformed against the shield. Two, those are your two marquee matches. Uh, why don't you just uh, start with one of the two matches, and I'll give you my take, and then we'll go to the other match, sir. Well, I mean, I would have to say the match that everybody is really interested in seeing. Actually, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a match that I honestly <laughs> couldn't care less about, but uh, you know, I guess we'll see what happens. Is uh, evolution against the shield. Now, the interesting thing, sir, I'm sure you saw Raw last night, but Ric Flair seemed like he kind of he came out, which is great. You know, they acknowledged him being part of Evolution, nice to see. And then it kind of turned his back on them and, you know, was talking about the Shield in a positive way. And then he just walked away. I mean, everybody was going crazy and, you know, foaming at the mouth, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, this match is pretty much the future against the past. I think that uh, the Shield will win, hands down, because Batista – from what I've heard, is going to be taking a little bit of time off. And, you know, again, for all the knocking and, you know, people talking crap about him, I mean, Batista has been there day in, day out, night in, night out. You know, if you're not SmackDown, if you're not Raw, wrestled on both shows, you know, wrestled the, the live events, pay-per-views. I mean, you know, he's he's what you'd like to see in a part-time wrestler. Not a guy who comes out once every three months like Brock Lesnar, but somebody who's there on a consistent basis for a certain period of time. Um, but... You know, he's going to take time off, so there's no way that the Shield can lose this match, I'd say, unless they're going to win, unless they do lose, and then the next thing in a row, they put Batista out of action, and, you know, you go from there, and when he comes back, he has a built-in feud with Roman Reigns, which I guess is a possibility, sir, but uh, what do you think about that match? Um, I, I like it, except for the fact that it's um, the Extreme Rules pay-per-view, so, and I understand that John Cena, we'll talk about that match, too, John Cena is in a steel cage match against Bray Wyatt, but... Um, I think that if you want to really sell this match as a you know um, a six-man tag warfare, why not put a hell in the cell in that match and close those six guys up and and put on a great show because we know that like most of them are could have put on a decent show. We saw Randy Orton and uh, Batista when you put in an additional person with Daniel Bryan put on a decent main event at WrestleMania. Uh, any thoughts on actually making this an Extreme Rules? If it's an Extreme Rules pay-per-view, why not make it uh, a Hell in the Cell match with these six folks in the match? Well, there's no way at this point they're going to make it a Hell in the Cell match. They're not just going to come out and over and say, hey, the Hell in the Cell, but uh, I don't have any problem with that. I think it would be a good idea. I always like the elimination matches myself, so I, I've always felt like a six-man match should always be an elimination. I don't like the uh, single pinfall. 
Um, right. I think that would be a much better route to go if they were going to do like a, I don't know, a TLC, you know, six-man elimination match or whatever the case is. I mean, it should definitely be an interesting match if nothing else, but I mean, as far as being, quote-unquote, you know, the the most exciting match on the card, I, I definitely don't don't see that, sir. Um I mean, like I said, there's so much there's so much in there. I, I do hope, though, that the Shield does win. I mean, they, they should get the rub against Evolution. I mean, Evolution is temporary. They're here for weeks, and they're going to be gone. I can't stand. The only one of the three of them that I even care about is Triple H, so, you know, let's, let's move on from that, sir. Yeah, I mean, the only interesting uh, aspect of this match to me is, like, what if, um, because right now Evolution is basically about, like, the future, the present, and the past, and you could pretty much say that, you know, if if Flair wasn't there, you could pretty much say that, you know, Triple H is the past, the future um, is is to be determined, if you want to say that, and the the, fu- the present is the Shield. So what if, by chance, like, Roman Reigns somehow, like, just left the Shield and just joined Evolution and became, like, that future role, and then they had Evolution that way? I mean, I, I think that's the only way that it would intrigue me, is if you had one of these people, one of these guys from the Shield, actually turn and then join Evolution. I mean, I definitely don't think either guy, uh, you know, either one is, that's going to happen. But, I mean, that would be, if you were going to keep Revolution around without Batista, I mean, that would make sense. I guess the only problem becomes, then the Shield is only two guys, and they're pretty much useless. So what do you do with the Shield? I mean, you can't have, uh, what's it, uh, Ambrose and Rollins against the other three or four guys. So that kind of that kind of kills that idea. And I doubt they're going to bring another guy in. And considering that Reigns is over as a face, I doubt they're going to go and, you know, flip the script and turn him heel immediately, sir. I know this is overanalyzing, and I know wrestling's fake, and obviously it's scripted and, and written and all that. But sir, I mean, they I went through a whole—it's <laughs> fake, by the way. Um, they went this, through this whole process uh, this past couple of weeks to determine a number one contender for Biggie's Intercontinental Title, and um, you know, as far as I know, Dean Ambrose is the U.S. champion, and this guy just never defends that title. To me, it just—it it makes no sense Has that ever title. I think he's defended once or twice, but I can't remember when. Long time, hasn't he? He has been, but he hasn't really defended, like you said. I think he might defend it when he first became the U.S. champion, but ever since then, um, again, the title's useless. No, I agree, but I like the whole. Honestly, I love the Intercontinental Title Tournament. I think it's great. I think that the fact that Barrett is getting a push. I mean, I don't know if you noticed this, but the, the WWE crowd is all about you know, catchphrases and stuff like that. All you need is a, is a fruity catchphrase and everybody gets into you, like the Usos and their whole stupid thing. And I mean, yes, yes, yes. But, you know, it's funny. I'm looking at the champions on the WWE website. The shortest guy by far is Daniel Bryan, which is, which is <laughs> awesome. But, you know, when you look at the way that this is set up, I mean, the Intercontinental Title Tournament is awesome. I honestly thought there was a chance they were going to have RVD win because it is Extreme Rules. It's his type of pay-per-view. Maybe they were going to give him another run with the IC title. But instead, they're going to put him in the triple threat with Cesaro and, um, you know, with Swagger. I thought Cesaro was going to win at first. I thought he was a lock for it, and it was going to be him and Swagger in the finals. Obviously, WWE had other plans. Um, but I just want the title of Big E, and I definitely would like to see Bad News Barrett win the title. I mean, he's, he's you know, crowd loves him right now. I'm afraid I've got some bad news. You know, that's over. <laughs> uh, we got to get our buddy from England uh, to call, and I forget his name, Psycho Sid or whatever the hell it was. But um, getting back to Dean Ambrose, which is what you originally mentioned, yeah, the guy's never basically defended it. Um, I mean, he's talented. He's a good wrestler and all that. But, I mean, geez, he's been an intercontinental champ for, for entirely too long. 
uh, excuse me, U.S. champ for entirely too long, and uh, I don't know what they're going to do, sir. I just, I just don't understand it, sir. I'm yep, actually checking right now uh, all the different titles so that I can give you a, um, I can give you a time frame here. Dean Ambrose has been champion since. Oh my gosh, he's been champ in three weeks. It'll be a year. Wow. He's been champ since May 19th. I mean, he's not defending the title. This guy's going to have the Intercontinental title for over a year. That's insane. That's that's one of the longest. That's got to be one of the longer title reigns in Intercontinental. Uh, excuse me, Intercontinental. That's got to be one of the longer title reigns in U.S. Championship history. I mean, geez, that, that's a long time to be champ, sir. And didn't he beat Kofi Kingston, I believe, at the at a pay-per-view? He did beat Kofi Kingston, uh, again, May 19th of last year in St. Louis, which is ironic because that's the time they were just in on Monday. Um I'm just here looking at this to see, and I don't know. I don't know if anybody has had a longer title reign than, than Ambrose, sir. I mean, I'm gonna you know, <laughs> crack check this out, but um, honestly, this I mean, this is one of the longer title reigns that they've had in years. But the guy doesn't do anything; he doesn't defend it. It's just pretty much hanging there. They need to just merge that title back with the Intercontinental title, give it even more prestige, and give it to Cesaro for like six months before he goes off uh, to the, the WWE title. No, I agree with you. I thought Cesaro was going to win the tournament and move on to win the the the, um, the Intercontinental title against Big E. I thought that giving him that secondary title, which I guess back in the day in old school uh, wrestling, you know, when there was Hulk Hogan and you know back in the '80s, the Intercontinental title meant a lot more than it meant uh, nowadays. Now it's all only about the the WWE World Heavyweight Title. But uh, so let's even talk about that match: Big E versus Barrett. I guess. Um, Barrett is getting this big push, and it seems like, sir, between Barrett, Damian Sandow, uh, Rusev, the, the, the WWE is going back in time and going with the gimmicks, and we talked about this probably a couple weeks ago or even a month ago. The gimmicks just don't work. They don't for the most part. I think Damian Sandow is talented. He's great on the mic, but, you know, what is he doing? He's dressing up like Magneto, which is a sweet costume, by the way, but absolutely ridiculous <laughs> yesterday. Um, he's just, a, you know, getting beat up and stuff, not doing anything. This guy was, was the Money in the Bank winner. The first guy other than Cena to cash in and lose. Um, and obviously he's not going anywhere with his career. Rusev, to me, is a joke. The most, the most appealing part of that duo is Lana, who, you know, is a beautiful fake Russian, uh, or whatever she's supposed to be. But, um, you know, the whole Bulgarian brute, that whole thing just doesn't work. Fans don't care. He gets no reaction. If anything, Lana's going to get all the reaction. And the, only, the gimmick that does work, I guess, is Bad News Barrett. Because people love the whole, I've got some bad news. Um, actually, you know what, sir? The longest title reign that I can find here for the U.S. title was Rick Rude. He held the title for almost exactly 14 months, which is a little bit over a year. So I just wanted to throw that out there for you, sir. Um, back in WCW but, days? Yeah, back in WCW, exactly. But getting getting back to what we were talking about... Um, yeah, these gimmicks are terrible. I mean, Adam Rose is coming next week. That's going to be a flop. And the WWE just, just pisses me off with these stupid gimmicks that just nobody cares about. You know, get these guys in there. Let them wrestle. Let them do what they have to do. And, you know, people are going to like them or not. That's pretty much it. No, you're right. And But you also mentioned this. and I, I think you actually forgot you mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Uh, the fact that the gimmicks are back, but the, the only gimmicks that actually work are the ones that make people laugh. So think about it, sir. The one with Ben is Barrett. The way when you make that that gimmick and that that sound effect, like try to be like Barrett, it's only because people love it because it's funny. Any other gimmick is just not, you know, doesn't work nowadays with this reality generation. I agree. Um, you know, gimmicks are played out. Gimmicks are 
old school gimmicks are not something to you know to get guys over. A guy's talent, his his or her wrestling ability, should be what gets them over. But instead, they try to saddle them with dumb gimmicks that a lot of times just end up burying them. The um, Adam Rose gimmick. I mean, this guy was Leo Kruger. This guy was a you know real BA wrestler, et cetera, et cetera. Was a was a champ not only for a uh, NXT. Before it was NXT, uh, Florida Championship Wrestling. I think he was a two-time champ, you know, high hopes. And then they give him this, this nonsense gimmick. Um, unbelievable, you know, just totally, totally awful. And and it's yep. really – you tell me what gimmicks work. None. <laughs> well, no, you're right. The the whole, like – and we'll get to the whole Dan Bryan Kane thing. I thought that gimmick was pretty, pretty, all, uh, pretty bad, too, considering, again – it's all like cartoonish, and you know, like Kane coming from under the ring. It's like to me, it's like you don't need that no more. Um, I wasn't buying it, so I don't know if like they're again maybe WWE's catering to a younger generation that like will give kids nightmares that you know Kane was from under the ring. But come on, anyway, before we even get yeah, to that well, match, I, I, I do think. Sorry, sorry, I do think that that's part of it. Um, but the only gimmick, the only other gimmick that I can think of really working is Bray Wyatt, simply because, and we'll get to this match also, is because he sells it so well, you know, and I know you're not a fan of his per se, but the guy's amazing on the microphone, he is talented in the ring, and he sells it to to the full tilt, and I mean, that's the only way you can do it, I guess, but I mean, man, who cares about his gimmicks? Let's let's get right to that match. Let's, it's safe to say that somebody that wins a tournament to get to the number one title, number one contender for an intercontinental title, I think we're both picking uh, Barrett to win the title at Extreme Rules. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, you got to give Wade the, the title, I mean, even though he's been champion before, I think now with the fans behind him, I think that he, again, he's an entertaining guy, you know, he, I've always thought Wade Barrett had talent, and I just remember the uh, the Hall of Fame, when everybody was just like, like frothing at the mouth over this guy, you know, when he came out, they were genuinely surprised and just laughing, I mean, it goes to show he's probably a pretty popular guy behind the scenes, so, you know, I think that, uh, good to go, sir. Yeah, so, the match that you were alluding to just a few seconds ago is John Cena taking on Bray Wyatt in a cage match, and they did a lot of good, uh, I guess, psychological uh, gimmickry, uh, gimmickry, uh, you know, with the choir last night uh, showing up and then with the, wearing the sheep masks and then singing He's Got the Whole World. The only thing, sir, that I'm not going to say that I'm not going to give Bray Wyatt any credit what I don't like is the fact that John Cena wins at WrestleMania, and I'm pretty sure that he's going to lose at a non-big pay-per-view, which is Extreme Rules this Sunday. Um, if you really want to sell me on this whole feud, you have John Cena lose at WrestleMania, you have him lose again at Extreme Rules, and you have him keep losing for the next couple months and have Wyatt get in his head, and then so much that where he, he's like he doesn't know what to do with himself, and he turns heel or something. Yeah, I mean... That speech he gave yesterday, I, I'm, I've given up on seeing ever turning heel to WWE, especially after watching that video package of him and the Make-A-Wish Kids, which is which is an amazing thing that John does. I mean, that, you know, all the credit in the world i got to give him for that. I mean, he's done it more than anybody. So, you know, again, kudos to him. But, man, I mean, who the hell, who cares about John Cena at this point? Um, the fans are into him, but the fact that he was cutting that promo and the fans were where, you know, why did you do this to me? Why did you vote against me? Well, that was cool, but I just don't think it's going anywhere. So, you know, I have a hard time really caring about that. But do you think Bray Wyatt actually wins this match? I mean, it would be, it'd be hard uh, yeah, to believe I, that. I think he needs to win this match. If he loses, I'd be shocked, to be honest with you. But like you said, I mean, he should have lost to Mania. 
Uh, he didn't. I mean, he's got to lose this one, right? I mean, if he wins, uh, I guess Bray Wyatt is done. But I'd say there's, there's not a chance in hell that Cena wins this match, which probably means he's going to win it in five seconds. <laughs> Probably five seconds, he's gonna, right? He's, gonna, he's not even going to lock in the, uh, S, what is it, the STFU or whatever the hell he calls it. Yeah, yeah. He's going to hook the leg, and then Bray is going to be tapping <laughs> immediately. That match will be the shortest match in pay-per-view history. No, I believe it, because, you know, uh, all the all the um, the psychological warfare against John Cena and then have John Cena be Super Cena at the actual match, to me, just doesn't, you know, add up. It doesn't sell a good match. It doesn't sell a good storyline. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that Bray Wyatt will win the match um, in a cage match. What he, they should have done, if they really want to, is put all three of them in the cage against John Cena and just have him, like, destroy him. I mean, it's a pay-per-view that's not big pay-per-view, so have John Cena lose like he typically does a non-big pay-per-view. Yeah, I agree. I love how you say non-big pay-per-view as opposed to, like, unimportant pay-per-view, lesser pay-per-view. You know, something that's more uh, grammatically correct, but, of course, that's, that's who you are. That's me. Um, so you got that match. Hopefully Bray Wyatt wins. And, um, you know, some other matches, uh, which I, I have no idea where, how this even makes it a pay-per-view. You know, you have R-Truth and Xavier against Rusev. Uh, you know, Rusev should win that in, a, in about five seconds. You have uh, Paige versus Snuka. That's for the women's title. Any thoughts on that? To me, it's uh, a throwaway match, but, you know. Wait, which, which one are we talking about? Are we talking about the women's match? Yeah, Paige versus uh, Snuka. Yeah, to me, it's like, I mean, I I have to think that uh, Paige is going to retain that. I don't like the way she's been booked so far. I don't think she's been booked strong. I mean, she has one with that awesome, I mean, have you seen her finishing move? That's insane, sir. It's insane. You're right. It's a great finisher. So uh, hopefully, you know, Paige does retain the title. And I guess then you, you have the main event. You have uh, Kane versus Daniel Bryan, Extreme Rules match. Um, they did, you know, as best as they can, I guess, to build up towards um, a, a feud between these two. But these guys have been fighting on and off for the past year and a half. So what's another match between these two guys? I think Dan Bryan wins this match. It's, I guess it's going to be extreme in terms of there's going to be some maybe some blood and some, some objects, some foreign objects. But I, I don't see how, how Dan Bryan doesn't walk away, retain that title, um, maybe being up a little bit more because... That's the gimmick that they're going with. He's the underdog that gets beat up so much that he still overcomes the odds when it's time for the match. So Dan Bryan should walk away with the title after Sunday night. Yeah, uh, he definitely has to. But then again, you you bring Kane back, right? He goes bad and he does all this stuff and blah, 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 blah. You know, the demon, <laughs> ah, unleash the demon, right? But then he loses yeah. the match. And what the, what's the point? I mean, Kane, if anybody can lose a 1,000 matches and still have fans, you know, like him, they would be Kane, but... I mean, what's the point, sir? There's no way he can win this match, right? Yep. I mean, th- this is a pay-per-view from top to bottom, sir, that if we didn't have the WWE Network, I, I would I would say that like, you, you I'll be sleeping by the time the first uh, couple matches actually uh, start. But I'll watch it because I oh, actually paid, you know, this is bad. No, it is, it is bad, but, um, I mean, it could be worse. But, I mean, could I be worse. That- Again, I agree. There's no way we would be watching this if we didn't have the WWE Network. But I mean, honestly, isn't it isn't it worth a watch at least, considering that we've already paid for it? I mean, you can't not watch it, right? No, you're right. I, I'm going to watch it again. It's prepaid, though. But other than the fact that we, if we didn't, there was no such thing as the WWE Network, and um, I wouldn't be watching this pay per view. But you talk about the WWE Network. Um, there's that new show, and I've only seen the first episode. I know that there are two episodes in, but have you caught Legends House? I just wanted to get your thought on that before we take a break and get Gwendolyn Rush. 
I haven't yet, unfortunately, but I've heard I've heard it's interesting and whatever. But I definitely have not caught it. What did you think the one episode that you saw? Well, I, I wanted to see obviously the first one um, live because I just wanted to see how they were going to do it. And you know, any reality show has now been overplayed to the uptenth degree, where you you know you have the some people living in the house and they all have to get along. They have to do these. This, these different events, these different competitions. So I thought the first episode, the way they introduced the, the wrestlers one by one coming into the house and did like a little bio on them as they were coming and then how they, like, you know, how they have a, a strong bond with each other because, you know, wrestling is a, a strong fraternity, even though, like, you know, they're fighting each other. There's really a strong bond that goes behind the scenes. And, you know, you see, like, Roddy Piper with, with – um, Hillbilly Jim, and you see him with, you know, the Fink. I, I think what surprised me more than anything, sir, is the fact that the Fink has just blown up in the last couple of years. He doesn't look like the, the skinny self that, you know, when I think of the Fink, I don't think of what I see him on Legends House. No, I agree with you, but he's, he's, been, he's been a little bloated for a while, sir. He has. So I, I recommend that you, you watch the first episode, and if it gets your... If it catches your fancy, if you will, then uh, we could definitely talk about it week by week. Um, I have to catch the next episode. Um, probably watch it tomorrow before a new episode comes out. I think every Thursday night a new episode of Legends House comes on. Um, and speaking of the WWE Network, since we have about five minutes before Glendon comes on, um, have you been watching any old school stuff? Have you watched anything on the network recently? Um, no, honestly, I haven't. The only thing I've seen recently is a couple specials they did on Warrior. That that was pretty much it, which were very very well done. I started to watch the um, the Triple H one. What, what was it? What's it called? Um, oh, Thy Kingdom uh, Come or something like that. Yeah, Thy Kingdom Come. I started to watch a little bit of that. It was really interesting. For I got it about twenty minutes in, and then I had to leave. You know, because it's tough. Sometimes the girls wake up in the middle, you know, late at night, and that's when I try to watch my TV and catch up on things. Oh, excuse me. Oh. Well, I'm glad you took my recommendation. I did recommend watching that one at the very least. I thought I think the WWE does a pretty good job with those like um I don't know what you call them, those documentaries on, on the wrestlers. I thought the one with Triple H was really well done. And, again, I, if you do finish watching it, we could definitely break it down next week or the week after. So that's I definitely basically will wrestling. watch it in the next couple of weeks, sir. Yeah, definitely. And let me know what you think, and then we could def- definitely break it down. But, uh, you know, with about three or four minutes before we take a break, how about the fact, sir, this is a good segue, we should we should talk about the, the Mets currently. How about the fact that, Surprisingly, I know it's the month of April and you, you need to do this all year round, but um, a surprising start for the New York Mets, honestly. Um, who's pl- they're playing really good baseball. For the month of April, uh, who would have expected them to finish about four games over 500? No, but I mean, last week on the show, or the week before that, I called that the Mets would never finish a game. Well, the Mets would never <laughs> at any point in the season be a game over 500. And look at them. I mean, they're pretty much like they're like the fourth or third, third or fourth best team in the National League. The funny thing is, right, their batting average is one of the, I think it's the worst or one of the absolute worst in all of baseball. And they don't hit with runners in scoring position, yet have no power, and yet somehow they've won all these games. I mean, it's going to catch up to them. Their pitching is, they're pitching well, but they're not that good. Let's be honest, sir. This team is not that good of a team. There's not that much talent. They have almost no offensive talent whatsoever. They have zero power. David Wright has, you know, he's knocked in runs, allegedly. 
But I mean, the guy has had has hit for nothing. He hasn't hit any power. No, you know, he's got what one home run, I think, um, which is pathetic. But um, you know, they've they've managed to somehow win games, and I mean, they've done well. It's mostly smoke and mirrors, I think. But at the end of the day, I do think that the Mets are gonna. The game's just finished, I believe. Yeah, the Mets won six to one. You know, so good for them uh, tonight. But man, I tell you. This pitching staff, it's going to catch up to them, sir. It really is, and I think the Mets are going to, they're going to take a nosedive pretty soon. I know it sounds, you know, why am I complaining? And I'm not complaining, and I'm not trying to rag on this team. I just, you know, I'm sure you agree. It's it, this is not a good baseball team. They don't, they don't have a lot of talent. I mean, Curtis Granderson has done nothing so far, um, you know. And I mean, what do you expect from this team, sir? You, you can't. Ex- and that's the thing about Mets fans. They get so high, the Mets all. Oh, you know, I saw tweets this week that the Mets are leading in the in the National League wild card. Are you freaking kidding me? Twenty three games into a season <laughs> at this point, it was a couple of days ago. Twenty three freaking games into a season, and you're over here talking about uh, the Mets are fifteen, eleven, four games over five hundred. Good stuff. Um, and they're t- they're talking about the Mets are in the lead for the wild card. We're in April, and somebody's talking about the wild card. And then the other, yeah, the Mets second place New York Mets. What what? the hell is wrong with people? Are they in drugs? Are they in crack? I mean, what the... What, sir, can you tell me? These are the kind of sick freaks that call themselves Mets fans. I mean, yeah, talk to me in July. Talk to me in August. Talk to me in September. Don't talk to me about this in April. I think the Mets have the last couple of years, especially last year, this is, to me, is deja vu from last year. The Mets actually pitched really well in the beginning of the year, and then they all fell apart because their offense, like you said, is just atrocious. They don't. They have maybe two or three major league baseball players that actually play the field, like David Wright, Curtis Granderson, and, um, you know, you want to give me Daniel Murphy at second base, okay, but everyone else, I mean, they're not major league baseball players in terms of offensive hitters that are going to be consistent throughout the year, and I think that this is what's happening this year. I think, once again, they're pitching way above um, their potential, and they're, they're, they're hitting, like you said, it's probably dead last, and somehow they're winning these games. If you break it down, though, piece by piece, or at least series by series, if you're going out and winning your series, you're doing a good job, and you're always going to be above 500. So I think the last couple of series, I think the Mets have won the last four or five series that they've played. So you keep winning series, you, you know, you're going to be at least in it. And, sir, don't forget, the wild card, there's two wild cards this year, so the Mets, in theory, should last a little longer than they have in the past couple of years where there's only one wild card. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. But, um, you know, again, let's let's calm down. I, I hate to the Mets fans to get so excited. I remember when they were chanting MVP for David Wright a couple of years ago in, like, like, the middle of May, and then he pretty much swapped it up for the second half of the season and did absolutely nothing. I just hate it, you know. I hate that kind of stuff, and I hate the Mets fans to get excited. But, you know, it's not about raining on their parade or anything. It's about being realistic. The Mets aren't going anywhere this year. They just don't have the horses. They don't have the talent. They don't have the pitching. But, you know, maybe in a year or two they'll be good. They have a lot, of, a lot yeah. of changes to make, you know. There's a lot of things that they, they have to change there. What can I tell you? The way they're pitching nowadays, I mean, I don't even think, that, what would the Mets be? Like maybe one or two games better than they are right now if Matt Harvey was here? I don't think that they'd maybe. be much. Yeah, I mean, the, it's all about their offense right now. And, um, again, um, I don't know what the Mets' plan are or who they want to sign, who they want to bring in free agent-wise, but the Mets are going to be really loaded in, in next year with their starting pitching, and they, they should really bolster up that, that bullpen and hopefully – with the young arms, they could put some really strong arms in the bullpen and have a, you know, not even worry about the pitching staff from top to bottom and just focus on getting some offensive hitters because, sir, I mean, 
we, we talk about the Mets being jinxed. I mean, let's talk about the fact that Ike Davis is probably going to have a monster career now that he's uh, not on the Mets anymore. He's on the Pittsburgh Pirates. Of course. I mean, you know, I talked about this last week. I mean, I hope Ike does well, and I think he will, you know, long term. I mean, it, he's better off. His dad is thrilled. The whole family's probably thrilled that he's got the hell out of this, you know, some <laughs> home that is New York. Because think about it. I mean, they weren't doing anything with him. They were pretty much taking a dump on the guy. So I think that, um, you know, it, it's a good move for him. And, you know, hopefully he'll do well soon. Yeah, I hope so too, uh, for his sake. I was, uh, I used to always joke with you that um, he was like the. He was a cross between uh, Dave Magadan, former Met back in '86, and uh, Bruce Springsteen. He, to me, he always looked like a cross between the two guys. So, um, hopefully, again, well, yeah. So hopefully he uh, right. Hopefully uh, he has a good career. Again, the Mets, in terms of just their offensive players, they're, they're just jinx. I think. I think the Mets are going to have a great pitching staff next year. I think their staff is decent this year. I just think that, you know, like you said, their offense is going to catch up to them, and then they're going to take that swoon that they usually do in the late, um, you know, July and August. Hopefully they don't do that this year, but if they do, don't say that Pure Gold didn't tell you so because we we keep it real. I know we sound pessimistic, but, sir, I think we're the most realistic Mets fans, just like we're probably the most realistic wrestling fans. We're probably the most realistic Mets fans that are around. Yeah, we're two of the most. I mean, you know, other people go nuts and they're uh... – just terrible, terrible, what, what could I say, just terrible uh, fans who just take things to the extreme. You know, we're pretty much even keel. We probably get a little bit too um, negative, but, I mean, it's who we are. We're negative knowledge as it were. So um, the baseball season is about a month old now, you know, turning the page into May, so we'll see what the Mets could do. Um, do you remember, you know, as we hopefully get Glendon Rush on in the next couple of minutes, you think that um, – when you when you first saw Glendon Rush, what kind of potential did you see in him when he first came onto the scene as a New York Met? Do you think? I mean, th- this was the type of guy that I thought had a great potential and just wanted him to be like at least a number two. I thought he was going to be a strong number two. I don't know if he was going to be the ace of staff, but a strong number two. Yeah. And you yeah. can't go wrong with left. Go ahead. I don't know what crack you're smoking if you ever thought that Glendon Rush was going to be an ace pitcher or a number two, I and mean, he would probably laugh at you just for saying that. I know you're trying to kiss the guy's panty before he comes on, but I mean, jeez. I mean, I probably thought, I actually thought he was going to rival Sandy Koufax as the greatest left-hander of all time. And uh, actually, you know, surpass him, possibly. But, uh, no, I mean, I thought Glendon would have been good. I thought he would have been, a, you know, a, an exciting pitcher. I mean, with the Mets, he, you know, he was here for, again, a couple of years. He didn't pitch much in 99. He was 11-11, you know, in 12. His, uh, let's look at his... Uh, Little ERA he had going here, um, you know, three fifty, three eight one, and you know, not bad for a National League. I mean, he's, he's a good pitcher, solid guy. I thought maybe like a four or five starter, somebody who you know could pitch well and just do a good job. And um, you know, I mean, just uh, excited about about that, sir. But um, you know, you you talk about this for a second, and uh, I'll be uh, I'll be right back, as it were, unless you'd like to take a break. I think we should take a break and then let's regroup. Yeah. And hopefully, we'll have Glenn and Rush on with us. So, folks, we'll be right back after these words from uh, you know. Some of our past guests, as it were, which is something that we love to do. So we will be right back. Hi, I'm Anna Zelensky, and make sure to tune in to Pure Gold, where you can hear great interviews, wonderful insight, and the best talk radio around. This is Alicia from WSU Wrestling, and you're listening to Pure Gold. 
Hey, this is Blanca from Group One Crew, and you're listening to Pure Gold. You know, sir, I was just thinking, um, as we come back from the break here, we're going to have uh, Glenn Rush on with us in a second. Of course, you are listening to Pure Gold, as you just heard some of our past guests uh, say. You want to be a part of the show, 714-364-4721. But I was thinking, we should have gotten Howard Johnson and uh, Paula Duca to do those spots for us, sir. As a matter of fact, we still should. We should try to get those guys on once again just to do those spots. Oh, I think they'd love to. I think they'd love it. We got, you know, Road Dog and Billy Gunn to do this, so uh, why not uh, former Mets? Well, Billy didn't help us at all, but, you know, that, that's neither here nor there. Folks, <laughs> um, you know, again, it's always a privilege to have someone who was in a professional sport, somebody who played for our franchise, of course, the New York Mets. It's an honor, it's a privilege to be joined by former Major League pitcher, the one and only New York Met extraordinaire, Glendon Rush. Glendon, how are you doing this evening, sir? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Hey, Glenn. I'm doing great. Uh, you know, again, thank you so much for joining us. We were actually talking about you right before, um, you know, you called in, just kind of talking about where we thought you ranked, you know, the time that you were on the Mets. And, um, you know, again, just, just so many things to talk about. And, you know, you had a, you had a career in, in the majors, obviously. You know, you, you pitched for, you know, part of a 12 season, which, you know, most guys I've, – I've often heard this said, you know, people will always say stuff, they'll make comments, they'll, they'll bash players and – you know, obviously guys like us who've never played professionally, but I've always looked at it this way. If you're good enough to make it in the majors, you are better than, like, 99% of the human beings on the planet who play the same sport as you. So that makes you elite, if nothing else. And for you to have the longevity in your career, that you did, is impressive. I mean, can you tell us a bit about what it was like just being in the bigs and, um, you know, just, just, I guess, the honor that you had being a professional pitcher and pitching in so many different cities and, you know, for such great franchises? Yeah, absolutely. That's well. The one thing you touched on is is longevity. That's the most difficult thing. They, you know, it's extremely difficult to get to the major leagues, and then it's even harder to stay there long enough to build it into a career. And I was fortunate enough to um, get to play a long time and for six different teams. And uh, you know, I got a special place in my heart for for the Mets and the, and then the Cubs. Uh, those were kind of two of my spots where I really enjoyed playing. But uh, obviously, from the Mets standpoint, I was there during a great time that we had a couple great teams back-to-back years. Actually, three years in a row we played pretty well um, and got, got a chance to go and pitch in the World Series. So w- once you get the, that opportunity, you never know if it'll come again. And uh, for me, it didn't. I, I never got back again. So I was uh, once once in a career shot. You mentioned pitching on the Mets. And obviously, I mean, that's what we'd focus on because Joe and I are both lifelong suffering Mets fans. But, but, you know, you mentioned it, and, and that's why we, you know, when I saw you on Twitter and everything, and it wasn't like some random guy I've never heard of, oh, wow, this guy used to pitch with me. No, I mean, you know, you're a guy that we all know. Any real Mets fan who's, you know, in their 20s and 30s would know who you are, or older, of course. But you pitched on the last, you know, really, really great Mets team, I'd say. Oh six, they had a chance, should have won the World Series, but that's just a sore spot for so many of us. When you guys went into that, you know, tell us, I, I thought that you were overmatched. Again, being a big Mets fan, I thought the Mets were overmatched by the Yankees that year, but I, I never thought that they were going to go out in five. Did you guys think that you legitimately had a shot to beat the Yankees? I mean, what was the vibe like in that clubhouse that year? Well, there's no doubt we walked into that series uh, with, you know, feeling that we had a chance to beat those guys. We, we knew it was going to be a extremely tough battle with their starting pitching and their bullpen. You know, the, the guys they, they had in that pen – 
that year with Stanton and Nelson and Rivera. I mean, those once they got past six innings of the lead, it was it was tough to compete. And I think we I think we ended up losing four games by a total of I think five runs, if it serves me correctly. Uh, so they're all tight games, and uh, you know the one that I always look back on was game one. I ended up pitching in it, but I wish I wouldn't have just because we ended up blowing that one-run lead right, in the right. ninth inning of game one, and and uh, that was a tough one because to, to come out of one and zero at Yankee Stadium uh, game one, I think we would have we would have been in a position where a little bit different than we were, but you know you can't change it now. But they, they they had such a great team, and for them to win three in a row like they did is amazing. Now, Glendon, you, you bring up the World Series from 2000, the Subway Series, and, um, yeah, game one was the game that we should have had, and, uh, unfortunately, Benitez um, didn't hold that, say, uh, didn't save the game for us, and uh, we lost game one. Do you think that that took the whole momentum away from the Mets, or do you think that um, it was just that the fact that they just um, had a little bit better pitching, a little bit better heading, or do you think that um, all the momentum went away when uh, game one was blown? Uh, you know what, I don't feel like we we lost too much momentum. I'm, you know, we none of us were were uh too pumped up when we when we blew that one. Obviously, that was a real tough one to lose, especially being at their place with that team that they had. But but you know, I, I think we battled all the way through and and it was just one game after another of them getting a a, a small lead and holding it and we couldn't come back from that. Uh great series though. I was so I mean, I'm so proud today to be a, have been a part of it. And like you guys said, it hadn't hasn't happened again since since uh, that 2000 season uh, for the Mets. They haven't been back, so hopefully, hopefully they will soon. That'd be my uh, probably my bucket list uh, NLCS Cubs and Mets. I'd go attend all seven of those games if it went seven. That'd be fun. <laughs> I mean, it's it's been leaked out, and people talked about rumors and stuff like that. They they talked about how, and you know, we're we're in a uh, era with the you know performance enhancing drugs. People talked about how, like, almost every Yankee uh, was um, you know using some kind of performance enhancer uh, during the 2000 World Series. Uh, just give us your take on the um, the era that we're in, and you think um, any of these folks that now have admitted to using performance enhancing drugs will ever get into the Hall of Fame or being a person that probably never did it, I mean, I'm going to say that 100% you didn't do it. Uh, what, what's your thoughts on just the whole era and the people that, like, the Barry Bonds of the world, the Mark McGuire's of the world? Give us your take on that. Are you guys saying that I didn't do it because I couldn't break 86 miles an hour? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, that, yeah, if I did do it, I was getting some bad stuff because it didn't improve my velocity very well. But, but uh, anyways, no, the, um, you know, I think I think it was – you know, for a long time in that era that, that there was, you know, tons of guys doing stuff, um, and, and it was just part of the game. And it, for a long time it wasn't tested for, too. So, I mean, it, my, my opinion's always been kind of if, if guys were doing it and it wasn't, wasn't something that, that they were going to get suspended for, they were going to continue to do it. So, a, as you guys have seen now, with the, with the evolution of the testing and where we're at now, you see the, the, the pitching is, has started to, uh, take over all throughout the major leagues. You don't see too many teams with three or four guys that hit 30 or more home runs like you did 15, 20 years ago. So it, it's definitely shifted back in the in the direction of pitching. And I think, and that's not to say that the pitchers weren't doing it either. So you know, the, there were yeah. I'm sure plenty of pitchers doing it, um, just as many as position players. So, but you, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see that they they finally put it in place where everything's 
really well tested for, and there's always going to be the next best thing, too, that, that maybe somebody can get around it with. But I think I'm sure you guys will agree that all in all, in general now, it's a pretty pretty clean league, and, and they've done a good job of putting it where it should be. No, they definitely they definitely have. I mean, you know, guys are suffering uh, from bigger suspensions, et cetera, et cetera. And it's tough. You know, when you have a guy like Ryan Braun who was basically caught twice, the first time he got off in the technicality, then he got caught again. I mean, I guess guys consider untouchable. Now, obviously, you would never say names and anything, and I wouldn't even be interested, but would when you were playing, I mean, is it something that guys talked about? Did you know of anybody doing anything they shouldn't have been doing? Or was it just I had, kind of like a hush thing? the slightest of ideas that of, of anybody personally that was doing it, which was amazing because, you you know, there, there obviously was guys, but it was definitely not, it wasn't advertised. Um, within the clubhouse, and, and I'm sure that the guys that were doing it were were kind of in a, a group of their own, and it, it didn't leave that, that group. So I, I think um, when you look back on it, I'm sure you can always look back on guys and say, oh, well, maybe he did or maybe he didn't, but the, the one thing that I've learned throughout the whole process, too, is you look at the guys who, who admitted doing it and came out and said, hey, yeah, I did it, I made a mistake, whatever the case may be, those guys have, have really slid under the radar, and, and everyone takes that in and says, all right, you know, he said he did it, and that's the end of it. I mean, the, I think it's the guys who continue to deny that they've done it or, or you know, hold a press conference and say they didn't do it, and then all of a sudden you find out that they did. That makes them look a lot worse. Well, yeah, when you look at A-Rod, of course, uh, you know, the most famous one who keeps getting brought up. I mean, you know, multiple times he's already been caught, said he only did it. He did the interview, and, you know, he only did it at a certain point, and then it comes up that he did it again. I mean, stuff like that. You know, guys, if people would tell the truth, you know, fans get over it, like you said, and they move on. I mean, Jason Giambi was famous for his whole, you know, I'm sorry for what I did, but never admitted that he did anything press conference. But at the end of the day, nobody really rips Giambi. Nobody really talks about it. You know, it's like, oh, well, he admitted it, and that's cool. But the guys that they always focus on, and even like David Ortiz, David Ortiz got caught, you know, he said whatever it was that he said. They didn't necessarily deny doing it. And, you know, everybody in Boston loves him, and it's like he never did anything in the first place. But, you know, so many different things going on. And Joe mentioned, I mean, of course, you know, guys are going to get into the Hall of Fame. I mean, maybe they'll get in, maybe they won't. I mean, it's going to hurt. But you played with a guy. You played on the team with with a guy who my all-time favorite met, my two all-time favorite Mets actually, uh, you know, Mike Piazza and Edgar Alfonso. But with Piazza, Joe and I feel that he's been royally screwed his first two years by being in the era of the performance-enhancing performance drugs, because Mike was never linked to it. Nobody ever said Piazza did it. The guy had freakish power since he was a string bean in high school, you know, when he was when he ended up being drafted, you know, like five million in the draft that he got picked in. But, I mean, nobody ever linked Piazza to anything, but yet two years isn't in the Hall of Fame. To me, Piazza should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, give us your take on that. I, I totally agree with you guys. I think he is hands down the best offensive catcher of all time and he should have been a first ballot hall of famer i in my opinion he should have been uh right up there as high as uh you know like a frank thomas this year that similar type you know offensive numbers uh that went in but unfortunately he like you said he was in an era when people are assuming that he may have or may have not but you know nothing ever linked him to it and there's no reason he should be punished for playing in the same era uh, as the rest of the guys. 
So hopefully, hopefully uh, it shifts the other way. But as far as some of those other guys go, I, I, I kind of feel like they're never going to get in, it, it, especially when you see the uh, decline of their percentages each year in the voting, too. So if they continue to go down, it's not like they're going up. I think only a couple guys have kind of gone up a little bit. So we'll see if the, any of those guys end up making it in. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, obviously we're going to have to see where that kind of pans out, but I just hope that Mike does get in eventually. I mean, again, an amazing player, first ballot should have been, you know, a guy who's never involved in any problems of any kind, you know, so obviously looking forward to it. And I believe he should go into the Hall of Fame as a Met. I mean, when you look at his career, he went to the World Series with the Mets, he spent more time with the Mets, played more games with the Mets, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, although his best seasons, per se, were with the Dodgers, I mean, many of his Mets years weren't far off, but, you know, from, from – Past Mets, let's talk to the current Mets. This is something I wanted to touch it, uh, base with you on. Since last week, the day that we connected was the same day this whole thing exploded. I mean, I'm sure you heard about it. I'm sure you saw it. Uh, Matt Harvey, the middle finger picture and everything. Um, I know a lot of fans were kind of like defending him and saying, you know, that it's fans who get upset about it that cost him. You know, he should be on Twitter and blah, blah, blah. And why do people have to be so bothered by it? I mean, I was bothered by it not because it's that big of a deal, but it bothers me that people wouldn't think anything of it when, you know, kids can see this stuff, and of course, I'm going to get your take on it, but just to kind of give you a sense of where I'm coming from, you know, Matt Harvey's 25, not 15, he's a professional baseball player, he is not a child, and, you know, to, to go up there and tweet a middle finger picture, like, oh, hey, I finished my, uh, you know, Tommy John surgery, bam, you know, a few, whatever, whether it's meant in jest, shouldn't be something that anybody should put on social media, and this is the type of thing that seems to be recurring with this guy, at the end of the day, you represent the organization. And, yeah, the organization should have a problem with stuff like that, but when it's you and you're constantly doing it, I mean, give us your take on that. You know, I'm, I'm curious, as a, as a former professional, you know, you know, a guy who played here in New York, social media wasn't wasn't really around when you were playing. I mean, you know, give us your take on that. No, this is a, it's a whole different era of, of what gets put out there, and, and it, you know, it goes from that all the way down to, going out to dinner or going to a, a bar or anything else that any of the players do with, with the technology and the social media and everything else that goes along with it, you know, you can end up putting yourself in a bad situation. And you've you got to be careful, but absolutely, you represent the organization and the, and the team and your teammates, and you've got to be careful of, you know, there's no age limit on some of these social media sites. So once it gets put out there, you're right, kids can see it, and that's not a, necessarily a good role model for for young fans, so so totally different than when I played because that that stuff wasn't out there, and you know it was that was back when you had to get in a bar fight or something to get in trouble in the paper the next day. Nobody was taking your picture on their cell phone or or tweeting out a picture, or putting it somewhere else on a social media site. So very different. Um, I think you know some, something was in the paper the other day too about a uh, one of the pitchers on one of the teams kind of complained about his rehab assignment or something <laughs> didn't strike the fans too well either. So you got to, you know, just be careful what you, what you do. We were always briefed real well with the players association each year at the beginning with them, with how to handle the media, how to take care of stuff. And I'm sure those are all things they handle now, but everyone continues to make mistakes. It seems like. And Glenn, you talk about technology and the, the, I guess, you know, people talk about the purity of baseball Give us your thoughts on the, um, you know, the the fact that now technology is now involved in baseball too, with the instant replay. Do you think that it? Um, I know from a pitcher, I'm guessing that 
um, and you you correct me if I'm wrong, it takes away from the rhythm of um, your pitching if you know there's a, an instant replay call that a, a manager wants to review. Uh, what are your thoughts on bringing instant replay into baseball? I, I really like it. I, I feel like that it's not delaying the game any more than it did before because when the manager went out and fought with the umpires for however long and nothing got resolved because you knew they weren't going to change the call, that it disrupted the game more than it did now. At least it's relevant, and it's as a pitcher, in, in my opinion, if I was in a game where there was a crucial play at first or, or anything else that could be overturned in my favor, obviously you don't want to be overturned not in your favor, but if you have an opportunity, it's going to change the game or help you. I mean, I think it's great. I don't know. What are your guys' opinion on it? Steve? I mean, I think it's a great idea. I've always thought that you know, they should have some form of instant replay, but it seems like they, they tend to get everything wrong. I mean, there was a couple of issues with, uh, with the Red Sox recently, and I guess, you know, once they work out the kids, I think it's important. I think that it's in every other sport. What the heck? Why not in baseball? You know, how many home run calls have gone the wrong way or, you know, how many close plays have gone the wrong way in big spots? I mean, I think about um, Galarraga a couple of years ago with the, the no-hitter that never was because the umpire made a mistake at first base, you know, made the wrong call. I mean, stuff like that, you know, um, I think it's a good thing for the sport, but I, I can understand, you know, Joe, why he would think that it would throw a pitcher off. But, I mean, it's not like you have that many challenges and that many times you can do it. So I think it's good, and I think, in, you know, give it, like, a couple of years, and I think it'll be a part of the game, like, uh, almost like in a seamless transition. So I don't see anything wrong with it, sir. Yeah, I'm sure they'll, I'm sure they'll go through and kind of kind of clean up the uh, the efficiency of it, too. Like Like you said, they'll go through and – make sure that they can operate a little quicker. And I was blown away that they were, you know, uh, making the wrong call on some of those transfer plays. I was never sure why they implemented that rule that you had to catch a ball and have a clean transfer, especially in the outfield. Um, I saw one play where Josh Hamilton caught the ball clearly and took his glove down and was putting it into his hand to throw it, and it dropped, and they went back and called him safe. That that to me was, uh, I have no idea why they tried to do that, but I'm glad they overturned that and now they switched it back the way it was. Yeah, I, I think instant replay is good. I mean, the bottom line is you want to get the call right and you want to, you know, have the right call made. Uh, and if it's, it needs to be overturned, then it needs to be overturned because at the end of the day, it's, it's all about the right call. I think it's a hybrid of what the NHL does and the NFL. So I, I would like to see instant replay. And I don't know if they'll ever get to this point where basically in the NHL, anything that's reviewed is done by um, the officials at a different location at their headquarters. I think in Toronto, they're watching the games too. And it's really out of the hands of the managers so or the coaches. So in football, you know, the coaches have two challenges. They get right, they get third challenge. Um, so I think baseball has a hybrid, um, you know, version of it for the instant replay. But I, again, at the, the end of the day, it's all about getting the right call. So that's my view on instant replay. Um, Glendon, being the expert, uh, you know, of Major League Baseball uh, pitcher, give us your take on why you think recently, over the last couple of years, there have been more and more Tommy John surgeries. You think that um, it's just um, the way they're taught these days, or is it that they're putting too much stress on their elbows? Give us your take on why there's so many Tommy John surgeries. I really have no idea. I've been trying to figure this out because it's been talked about quite a bit in the last couple of years, and you've seen more and more young guys blow out. Um, I, yeah. It, it could have something to do with just that everyone's bigger and stronger and throwing harder. I mean, if you look at the average velocity in the league, it's it's completely diff, different than uh, than it was when I played. I remember one of the one of the funnier stories I ever had was when uh, when I played with 
Maddox a long time in Chicago, and he said, man, you should have pitched in the 80s. You would have been like Randy Johnson in the 80s, throwing 88 to 90, <laughs> just because of that. You know, that was back when the, the lefties were, you know, throwing it up there, 83, 84, 85. So he, it was pretty funny. But as you see the progression of over the years, you got every guy in the bullpen can throw 95, it seems like, plus. And, and even the guys, the starting staff guys, regular right-handed pitchers were 88 to 92 more often than they were mid-90s like they are now. So it's continuing to go up. So that, that might be part of it. I don't know. It's really hard to put your finger on it. I'm not sure if it's, if it's overuse, stress, whatever it is, but it's sure, sure tough to see so many guys, especially the young, really talented pitchers that have come up or, are constantly going on the DL and, and missing a year, missing a year and a half. Yeah, it's it's baffling to me, and it, somebody's got to be doing something wrong somewhere because, I mean, I know the pitchers get babied. I'm like in the old days. I mean, my, my wife, we were listening to the radio, and, uh, you know, the Phillies were complaining about how sleeves of the pitcher were bothering them, and, you know, and she was she went off on one of her usual rants. I mean, she's not a big sports fan, but she was going off on one of her rants about how you know, these guys should be embarrassing themselves, should be shaming themselves, et cetera, et cetera. And I started telling her how guys like Babe Ruth, you know, they used to play – Back in the old days, they used to play with one leg. I mean, they used to play broken fingers, broken hands, you know. I mean, these guys could have been, you know, they could have been in wheelchairs and they still would have gone up there playing. I mean, that's just the way that, that the guys played back then, I guess, because the money wasn't the same. But now with all the money and everything going on, you know, you have so much stuff going on. Um, guys don't – guys are going to get injured. You know, they baby them. and say so you only have X amount of pitches in your arm, which I understand. That does make sense. But, I mean, man, you know, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, Glendon, but you, if you're going to get hurt, you're going to get hurt on pitch, you know, five or pitch 50 or pitch 87 or, you know, in your career eventually if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Um, I mean, it, it seems like the players get babied so much to the point where, you know, they don't get to really let loose, as it were, and then these things happen. I mean, give us your take on that. I agree with you. I think one of the things that that they're messing up with some of the some of the pitchers now is, is – not training them to throw enough pitches. So they are, especially in the minor leagues when the guys are coming up and they're cutting them off at innings limits and they're only allowed to throw X amount of pitches. I think if you train your arm to throw 110 or 120 pitches every time out there, once you get to that point, you know, at the end of spring training, you you build up to 75 to 100 pitches. And then when the season starts, by the second or third start, those guys should be ready to go 100-plus pitches. And and when they get to 140 or 50 innings, they don't need to be cut off. If they're trained to do that, I mean, I knock on wood, I made it through the whole time with, with no significant arm injuries, and I threw as many pitches as I could every time I went out there. So I, I was one of the lucky ones. But I, I think if guys are trained and not babied, uh, to go out there and perform at that level with that many pitches, I think they'll build to that. And you're right, they could blow out on the third pitch of the game just as much as they could probably blow out on the 120th pitch of the game. I'm sure sure doctors and experts will disagree with us, but, but I, think, I think the point you're making is very valid, which is if they're trained to be able to throw that many pitches and go deep in games and pitch 200-plus innings, then they can go out and do it. And I think when you mentioned about, like, babying or just putting restrictions, I, I, the person I think about, his career was really going to be uh, great, I thought, and I'm not a Yankee fan, but I thought Java Chamberlain, they really, really messed him up between putting restrictions on his pitches, they made him a starter, then they made him a reliever. I thought he was going to be the great 
closer that's going to, that was going to replace Rivera. Did you, did you feel the same way? I, I really liked him, yeah. I thought he was going to be great. and Hopefully he comes back and kind of rebounds. And You know, a lot of those guys have a, have a little bit of a bounce back later in their career where they really learn to thrive. So hopefully he has that opportunity. But, you know, the one that, the one that really struck me too was Strasburg, the, the year that they cut him off on the way to right. – going into the playoffs just blew me away. How do you not have that guy starting for you in the playoffs, especially in a five-game series? And they ended up losing that series. And then and they haven't been back since. So it, that's a, that's a – me especially with my story, going with the Mets and watching the them play into the NLCS in 99 when I got traded there and then going to the World Series the next year, like I said earlier, you never know if you're going to get back there. And I would never take a year like that for granted, especially – the way the Nationals were playing, and, and not, not have my best 25 guys on my roster when it came time to start October. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. So that definitely, I think it killed their season, and we talked about that at length on this show. And I guess what annoyed me about it was, you know, if the Nationals didn't think that they were going anywhere, why start – you're going to start Strasburg at the beginning of the year when you have a – what's the point? Why even bother? Why not start – if he only had a certain amount of pitches – and you're only going to let him put pitch a certain point. Why start him in May? Or, I'm sorry, April. Why not start him in May or June where you're going to get him to pitch the entire season? It just it didn't make any sense, and, you know, that's just an example of a team being overly cautious. And I thought they had enough talent to win the World Series that year, and it really cost them. And like you said, London, who knows if you ever get back to that point. So, I mean, it's just a total bonehead move on their part, especially because they weren't really predicted to do a ton, per se, that year. And, you know, you, you didn't, they didn't think that they were going to win the World Series that year, so why would you start your, your you know, potential ace, your top prospect, the first game of the year? Why not? If, you, if you're only going to limit him to the amount of pitches in the one season, why not start him later on? That, that whole thing just baffled me. I mean, we went nuts about it on this show. Well, if you, if, you look at, if you look at one of the best pitching organizations in the last 25 to 30 years, being the Braves, they did it the opposite way with, with Medlin. Um, a couple years back, correct? They brought him, limited him a little bit, but he didn't start until maybe into the end of May or June, somewhere in there. I don't know if I'm exactly right, but you know he ended up thriving. I mean, he had an awesome year, and now he got hurt. So it's like you look at at both both ends of the spectrum. Both of those guys, they went the opposite way of doing it, and both guys ended up hurt. So so you can't can't really predict the injury, but but I would have definitely gone the route the Braves went as far as if you're going on a pennant run. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it just goes to show you some guys know what they're doing, some guys don't because that definitely, definitely cost them, you know, big time that year. But, uh, you know, listen, Glendon, we just uh, we just appreciate so much having you on. I mean, hopefully we can have you on again at some point, talk maybe, you know, if they might do anything. I mean, I'd like to, you know, talk a little bit more about your career and stuff and kind of get into the whole you know, playing in New York and playing in Chicago, which are two, you know, hot-button cities. But, listen, again, just such a pleasure, such an honor to have you on. And, uh, you know, thank you so much, and hopefully we can have you on again in the future. Anytime, guys, absolutely. I'll, I'll be happy to come on again. You just let me know when and give me a week to do a little research. If you want me to do a little mess research, I can do that. i gotta, <laughs> I got to pay attention a little more. I, I watch so many games, I get confused sometimes. <laughs> I totally understand that. I mean, you know, we watch all we watch so much stuff. Also, so there are times where before when I was talking about Matt Harvey, before you came on, we were talking about pro wrestling because we talk about everything. I was going to call Matt Harvey a professional wrestler in New York. So, you know, trust me, it definitely uh, 
it's easy to get confused, but uh, th- again, thanks so much, and it really was a pleasure having you on. No problem. Thanks again, guys. Thanks, Clinton. Have a good one. All right. Bye bye. Folks, take care. That was the one and only. I was gonna say Matt Harvey. <laughs> that was you the wish. one and only. Yeah, all right. No, absolutely. <laughs> The one and only Glendon Rush, former New York Met, former Chicago Cub, a professional Major League Baseball player for more than a uh, decade there. I mean, you know, again, just an honor to have him on. It's great to have somebody, you know, and I, I really do want to have him back on the show because I didn't get a chance to ask him what was it like playing in New York, what was it like playing in Chicago, um, you know, just pitching in general, so many things to discuss. But, man, we've had the trifecta, sir. We had a position player, we had a catcher, uh, you know, we had a pitcher. I mean, we've had everybody on from the Mets, sir. We, we used to we should end the show right now and just, uh, you know, call it quits. We're, I mean, we should have a Metro Union one of these episodes. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely should have the three of them on. And, you know, all from different eras, too. I mean, you know, Hojo from the 80s and 90s, London from the early 2000s and then the late 90s, and then Luduka from the mid-2000s. But, uh, you know, just so many great things on this show. And we're getting ready to wrap up in a few, but we have Chet calling in from New York, and I'd like to get him on real quick. I know this is going to be a total uh, shift in gears from what we were discussing. Um, but he did call on the show once before a while back, and, uh, you know, just always happy to have callers calling in. So, Chet, I know there's, there's something you'd like to discuss, so, um, you know, just, just hit us with it, and we'll see. We'll try to give you the best answer possible, sir. Okay. Yeah, how are you, Chet? Am I on? Yeah, you're on. Yeah, you are. Hey, guys, how you doing? This is Chet out of New York, and uh, I was I was actually on – a mute there. I, I couldn't hear anything you guys were talking about on the show. Did you guys? You guys were just talking about sports, right? Yeah, we were just talking baseball before you came. Yeah, we accidentally our producer accidentally put you on mute. Um, but yeah, we were just talking a little bit baseball before uh, before you came on. Okay, man. Is this a sports show? Well, we talk mostly sports. Uh, we talk sports, wrestling, sometimes current affairs, sometimes politics. I mean, you know. But mostly sports, yeah. We we did talk everything. As the tagline says, anything and everything. Everything and anything. Okay. Well, okay, so I don't feel bad. (laughs) You know, sometimes I search around Black Talk Radio and uh, look for a show to go on to. I I, I make sure that it's somewhat related to uh, this crazy guy you're talking to because I am a Christian, and I have Christian worldviews, and I'm also an evangelist and an apologist. Uh, I, uh, who am I speaking to? You guys, super spiritual people, or are you not so spiritual? Well, um, I mean, Joe is probably the, the biggest heathen I know, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, you could say we're definitely, we're definitely, um, you know, guys who know a bit about the Lord. You know, both Christians. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was a minister at one point in my own church. You know, dealing with teenagers and stuff like that. So, I mean, definitely know we know our fair share when it comes to you know. Uh, the Christian faith, as it were. Okay. Okay, excellent, excellent. Um, Well, you know what? I'm just coming on. I don't know if you get any atheists that listen to the show or anybody of a different faith, but um, I'd like to ask this question to you guys. Tell me what you think of this. Now, again, your audience is is sort of getting a rude awakening here because you just got done talking about baseball. Now we're going to swing the pendulum here, and we're going to go to the other side and talk about spiritual things. So I hope it doesn't right, throw right. too well, many people off the off the rack. But um, here's here's my question, and this is this is a good probing question, I think, for most of everybody who's listening right now. So if you're a person who loves baseball, now we're going to talk about spiritual stuff. But here's the question: 
uh, the question to you all is, um, should is there um, should we tell anybody how we ought to behave? I guess that's a good starting question. In other words, what do you mean? Uh, qualify that. Mor- yeah, morality, for instance. Are we are we able to be able to justify telling somebody how they ought to behave in a morality well, sense? I think the problem that you get into when it comes to morality is that, you know, first of all, what's your basis for that morality? Where are you coming from? Are you coming, like you said, from a Christian worldview, from... You know, a, a non worldview, a non religious worldview, an agnostic worldview, and you know, atheistic worldview. Well, what's your opinion? Well, I mean, yeah, as a Christian, the the difficult thing, you, you're, I think that you're supposed to shine the light. You know, tell people about God, tell people about Jesus, um, and you know, point them in the right direction. Somebody, let's say, he's cheating on their wife, or somebody, you know, I don't know, stealing or doing drugs, stuff like that. Yeah, you should always, you know, help them reach the right conclusion, which would be, you know, this is something you shouldn't do. It's something that know, God would frown upon, but the problem becomes if you're not living the right life, if you're not living the life you're supposed to, if you're not leading a good example, if you're not being a good Christian, how are you then going to go on and tell somebody else? And I think the problem that people run into is that. I think most people, when it comes to morality, feel like they're immoral or not worthy or, you know, God is angry at them or however you want to play it. Even some people who go to church on a regular basis, whether they be Catholic or, you know, whatever faith you want to throw in there, um, you know, you talk about Catholic guilt and stuff but not to get too deep into that whole thing, but I think the problem because people don't know what to say, where they should set the boundaries, what they should talk about. I mean, if you're just going to go by what the Bible says, then you, yeah, absolutely, because if somebody's doing something that's immoral, you should point them in the right direction, but I think the reason people don't is because they feel either unworthy or they're the, you know, some of the earth or whatever you want to call it, so that's probably why many folks don't do it. Because in society, you're going to get criticized for that. You're going to get heckled for that. You, you know, who are, who do you think okay. you are? You know, are you you're, you're a Bible thumper, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, there's so many ways you can go. Well, let me let me let me, let me let me interject on one little thing here. Okay, yes, you know what what you're saying is absolutely true uh, on a lot of different levels, and it, and it, it's good for a Bible study uh, to dive into some some of those uh, other things. But let me. Let me let me say it in a different way. Um, on what basis can do we tell people how they ought to behave? I mean, what is our what should be our authority in that? Well, the only way again, going back to what I was saying originally, the only way you can have authority is if a you're living your life in a in a moral way as per what your beliefs are, because regardless of what religion you you know you practice. But since we're talking Christianity, if you don't, if you're not a good Christian, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, mm-hmm. you have no basis, no grounds, no authority to okay. stand on. And, and so, yes, of course. So let's say I'm a Muslim. Um, Hold on. Yeah, let me. Let, let, let's right. say I'm a Muslim. Okay, in a Muslim, in a Muslim faith, um, and I'm, I'm, I've studied a little bit, so I know it's in there. It's okay to, uh, in a sense, lie to further along as long as it gets a person to uh, sort of weigh have it more heavily on my faith. Right. Where us Christians would say, well, lying lying is wrong. Right. So right. you got two different religions there, two people being spiritual. Uh, well, which one is right and which one is wrong? 
Well, you could only go based off of what you personally believe because, you know, how are you supposed really? to... Really? So it's your faith. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. You can only go based off, off of your own faith. There's no other way that, um, you know, if you're, if you're a Muslim, you can't give someone moral advice based on the Bible. You can't give someone moral advice based on the Torah. You can only give them moral advice based on what you believe. But, you know, the thing about... The thing about Christianity that sets it apart from other religions is that, you know, in Judaism you have all these laws. In Islam you have all these, you know, the tenets of faith and all these things you have to do. You know, it's partially workspace, it's partially, you know, I mean, again, I don't, I don't subscribe to Islam, but as a Christian, it's really by, you know, grace and faith in, in Jesus and the grace of God that anybody is anywhere. And we're all on the, the, the beauty of Christianity is that we're all on a level playing field. We're all sinners, we're all wrong, we're all bad you know, we start out, and then you, you kind of branch off from there. So as a Christian, it's so can I ask you a question? That, that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let me ask you this question then. Do you believe that morality, for instance, is subjective to a person's opinion? No, absolutely not. Or, or the reason faith. it can't be... No, the reason it can't be subjective um, is because... All right, let's say, let's use, for example, Joe. And again, like I said, Joe is probably like the biggest sinner that I know. If Joe were to go and um, I'm trying to think of a good example if Joe were to go and you know he's, he's uh, embezzling money from his company and he's you know funneling drugs in and you know whatever I mean Joe works for a major uh, supermarket chain right so if Joe was doing all these things if, if Joe was doing all these I'm, I'm laughing because I think about Joe you know wearing prison stripes and Joe is you know is, is all this illegal illicit behavior right that's something that you have to be called out on the carpet on. It can't just be, well, you know, um, I'm a Christian, and you know, uh, but Joe's going to do his own thing, so I have no problem with it, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, again, you have to look at it based on what the Bible says. You know, it's a standard. You have to have a standard. If he thinks something is wrong and I think something is right and we don't agree, then, you know, it is what it is. Um, but, again, this is the kind of thing that we can kind of go on and on where the show is coming to, to a close pretty soon. So I'm going to have to let you go here, Chet, but let me just say that when it comes to Christianity, you have, you have the standard. It's a standard. We're all on the same level playing field. If it's subjective, then I think I'm right, you think I'm wrong, the other person thinks they're right, none of us agree on anything, so how could we all be right? That's ultimately what it kind of boils down to. But, um, right. you know, again, I appreciate that's you calling my point. in. And, yeah, no, of course. Listen, I, I do appreciate you calling in. Um, hopefully we'll have you on again You know, have a little more time to discuss. But, um, again, thank you so much for calling in, and there's, there's so many other things that we can talk about. And, you know, just check us out uh, next time you get a chance. We're always on Tuesdays from 11 p.m. to 12 a.m. Eastern time, so you're in the same time zone as us. So, you know, you have a wonderful evening, sir, and, again, thank you so much, and be blessed. And, uh, All right, that was Chet. The, the call just dropped there with Chet, and I'm really sure what's going on. And speaking of morality, sir, it's, it's kind of a good segue into the last topic of the evening. One thing we kind of have to do. Really is. Um, Donald Sterling, NBA owner of the Clippers. You know, obviously all these racial, racial, racially charged comments came out. You know, against black people it seems. I mean, I, I mean, I've read some of the comments. I think some of them can be taken out of context, and some of them can be, you know, sort of explained. And then of course there's a history of him being sued for racism, et cetera, which kind of blows all that out of the water. I'd like to get your take because I'm, I'm not sure that we're on the same page on this where we usually are. So. Give me your take, sir, if you could. Uh, when I said to you in our production meeting that it was, um, you know, best for business for, you know, Daniel Sterling to actually 
um, you know, be banished or sell the team or whatever. What I meant was it seems like we're in a society where if you're of somebody that has power or somebody that, um, you know, has some type of wealth, it seems like you are judged higher than um, a typical commoner because I'll give you the example. If I make those statements and I don't own a basketball team, for example, those comments really don't um, go, they don't really make the news per se and they don't uh, all of a sudden put everybody in an uproar. The reason why I feel like Daniel Sterling um, has powers because he owns Sterling, a basketball Sterling, team, Sterling, obviously. Sterling, is it? I'm confusing Sterling with, with Silver, with uh, Daniel Stern, uh, the, the former yeah. NBA commissioner. Yeah, they're all. David Stern? Uh, Are you talking about Daniel Stern, the actor, or David Stern, the commissioner? That's right. Daniel Stern was from Wonder Years, the voice of Wonder Years, and David Stern was the former NBA commissioner. So all Absolutely. those S's, it's just, it's, all these DS's, it's a little confusing. But anyway, like I was saying, with with power, just like uh, being corny about it, but you know, with great power comes great responsibility. You know, Sterling was basically. Was an it was an idiot for getting um, for making those comments, even though he was recorded illegally. Those those comments really made it to the public, and now all of a sudden, you know, you're talking about it's it, what it boils down to. Not only about racism, it boils down to money. Unfortunately, you know, you, you have advertisers that don't want to advertise with somebody that's uh, considered a racist or bigot. You have uh, basketball players that you know this is a, a league that is probably 85 percent. Uh, African-American, and, you know, you're, you're making racist comments, uh, nobody's going to want to play for you. So it's a trickle-down effect, and, and this is why I don't think he should be allowed to be in the NBA anymore. Well, all right. Let, let's, uh, how many black guys are on his team? I mean, is, is Chris Paul not African-American? I mean, is he not on the team? Uh, I think, yeah, even the coach is Af- African-American. My, my former coach, Doc Rivers, is the coach. Absolutely. So you tell me, if this guy hates black people, he had such a problem with black people, why would he allow them on his team? I understand you have to have probably, like, one just to kind of, you know, just as some sort of, you know, legality of, you know, just like you have to interview African-American uh, coaches in Major League Baseball, or, you know, blah, 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 you know, equal rights, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if he had such a problem, I mean, I don't think Doc Rivers would be his coach. I don't think uh, Chris Paul would be on his team. I mean, obviously he, he can still interject and whatnot. I think the problem here becomes we live in a society where you're not, you know, you, you can say whatever you want, think whatever you want, as long as you think with what the majority thinks. And not that I'm defending his comments, because, I mean, his comments are definitely not good. They're not positive. They're, they're bad comments. There's no way around it. Again, I do think some of them are taken into context. But him being fined $2.5 million for what he said, you know, there's, there's, I don't think there's any chance that this stands up in court because the conversation where all these uh, comments were heard were illegally recorded, and they, they're inadmissible in court. So this guy, who, from what I understand, is a former lawyer, I mean, you know, he's going he's gonna to take the NBA either to the cleaners, or I don't think he's going to end up paying a dime to that money because everything they're going based off of, which is why they suspended him in the first place, is illegal. I mean, those, those comments should never have been heard. Those comments were recorded without his consent, and that is illegal. So they can't. They have no leg to stand on when it comes to them saying, "Oh, well, you know, he made these comments, so we had to kick him out of our league because it's bad for our league." Yeah, I understand that. You know, I agree that those comments are bad for the league. But at the same time, you know what? Nobody should have ever heard that. It was supposed to be a private conversation between two people. You know, and it was recorded. He was basically trapped. 
you know, it's, it's like a form of entrapment. So you tell me, sir, that's not going to apply. Then, well, where's the NBA go from there? I mean, I don't, I don't see how there's any way that Sterling loses at least that end of the argument. I don't, I don't see there's any way for him to lose. You're right. He doesn't lose that per se, but he's lost the 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 the, the public because you know we're we have a sensitive society that obviously you know doesn't uh, tolerate racism and bigotry. And what um you know what Sterling did was basically admit that he just and you you know you you mentioned the fact that yes um he's got a black coach and whatnot. I, I think sometimes you know people will turn around and say to you then. You know, he's really using these people to make money, and that's why he employs these uh, African-Americans because, you know, they're the better basketball players. They're more athletic. They're, be- uh, they're better at, you know, basically in, in basketball, uh, other than, you know, other races. They, they, um, they really bring him the money that he needs to, to live the life he lives. So I think that that's why I mentioned that it comes down to money. I, I, I agree with you where um, – the, the conversations were were held in confidence, and when when you when you listen to the questions being asked by his former girlfriend, you almost think that she's reading from a script, and you wonder like was he set up? And you're right, in, in that regard, he's not gonna he's gonna win that case. But in the court of public opinion, sir, is is where it, it's really about, and this is where you know the fans can't don't want to tolerate it, the the players don't want to tolerate it, the sponsors don't want to deal with it because it's all negative press. And with negative press, you, you're losing money. And unfortunately, it comes down to money, I think. No, you're, you're absolutely right. It just comes down to money. You know. what, but what do you think about uh, Adam Silver, you know, the new, the new uh, commissioner of the NBA? What do you think about him acting so quickly just a couple of days after the comments were, were leaked without any sort of legal, um, without any sort of, like, what's the word, conclusion? I mean, I mean nothing, nothing is done to court or anything. Just to, to ban him for life? I mean, do you think that was the right move? No, I, I hear you on that. I, I just think that he felt the pressure, like uh, probably um, most of the owners are going to feel the pressure of actually ousting Daniel Sterling from the ownership of the LA Clippers. Because let's face it, um, if they have a vote and they and they only need seventy five percent of the vote to actually oust him as the owner and have him sell the team. Um, if anybody goes against what Sterling's ruling was today to, to get rid of him for life, I think that they're going to then look at that owner and say that this person's a, a racist or bigot. What, what gets me is, and again, I, I really think that what Sterling did was wrong, and um, the punishment for life, I think, is a little extreme, to be honest with you, for, for a recording that you know these conversations were held not in, in public, they were held in private. The thing that gets me is, and don't laugh at this, but like, not for nothing. There are like there's an actual station called BET, uh, and I'm sure you know what I'm alluding to. And they actually have like BET awards. I mean, if we're going to get to a point where we don't want no racism, no bigotry, how can you still have awards that are only specific to one race, and only they could actually get the award? Uh, to me, um, well, it goes both ways. You know. Festival. There's a Latin Grammys. There's a you know. Nuestra Belleza Latina, which is our Latin beauty, basically. I mean, there, there's all this stuff. It's just, it's okay as long as you're not white. It's okay. It's white man's game. Right, so exactly. You want, you know, you can be black, you can be Hispanic, you can be whatever. And, you know, I consider myself as, a, as someone who has Puerto Rican background, you know, technically we're made up of whites, Hispanics, and blacks, so I can make fun of all three races, and it, it's okay. Um, I think that at the end of the day, the problem becomes that it's oversensitized and it's over-dramatized. I mean, it is what it is. I, I, I do agree with you in the sense that 
you know, why do they why are those awards up there? Why is there still you know the NAACP when it's they're not even called colored people anymore, but that's what the CP and, and NAACP stands for. I mean, I think it's, we've reached a point in society where, you know, you, you're going to get in trouble for anything you say no matter what. And I mean, just like the guy from Mozilla was, was ousted because he gave $1,000, you know, to support Proposition 8, which is against homosexuality. You know, he got fired and basically forced to resign from his job because he wasn't in line with the popular opinion. That's what we're going to. We're going to, like, almost like a fascist state. And again, I don't think that anything he said that Sterling said was good, but, I mean, doesn't he have a right to say it? I, just so many different things, so many different topics, I and mean, we, we kind of can't get into it now. I mean, we'll see where things play out in a week, and we can talk about it then, but, um, you know, folks, we just thank you so much for listening here. Thank you so much to our caller. So, such great gratitude towards Glenn Rush. was an amazing guest. Um, hopefully we'll have him on again in the future, and next week, you know, we, we should have the lovely, I mean, comparable Jen Lilly joining us, I think, for a third time talking about her career and everything. I mean, she's done quite a few movies since then. She's done some Christian stuff. She's done a new soap opera, so so many things to talk about. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, folks. As always, you know, for, for JB, this is DG of Pure Gold, reminding you to always keep it PG. And as we get ready to say goodnight, um, I can't forget this. What's the name of your show? Uh, pure Gold. Pure Gold? Yes, sir. I got two words for you. Pure <laughs> Gold. You guys are awesome. Yes, we are, Nikki. Good night, everyone.